0: Our Father, you are a great Savior. You've drawn us close and brought us into your family, so much so that we can start off praying and calling you our Father. There's a closeness that you want. There's a boldness that you want. There's a relationship that you want. And I pray that you would forgive us, Father, for not wanting those things for wanting provision at the expense of your presence, for wanting things at the expense of time with you, Father. I pray that you would help us to see what it is that we've missed out on, to be reminded of the fact that joy is only found as we look um, inside of you. And I pray that we would come to you and ask for the sight to see those things, Father. Lord, cure us of the things that are wrong with us. Speak to us boldly through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, so glad to have y'all. I'm here in week two of our time. Here is a church. I'm John, one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm so grateful and glad to um, be here with y'all. It's been a long week for a lot of us that are in here. I mean, a long few days for my Wife and my family as we spent time um, last night, and we mourned the death of uh, her grandmother in Wisner, Louisiana. Um, and for those of y'all that have, that know us and have kind of tracked with us as a church through these past two months, um, it's been tough times. As Pastor Richard prayed, Lawrence, um, a guy who's lived here in the West End for years, lost his sister to cancer two months ago. I lost a uh, Brother, and what we've just seen is that through the course of these these past few weeks, one of the things that's been clear to all of us is how life has a way of rocking us to sleep. That as we kind of go through life and as we're concerned with bills that have to get paid, as we're concerned with jobs that we're trying to get, as we're concerned with work and with school and with all of these things that take our time and attention, life has a way of just rocking us to sleep. And we think that we're good. We think that things are all good until a crisis hits. And then when a crisis hits, what that does is it takes the the pillar that is our lives or the pillar that we thought was our lives and it knocks it down and it shows us that at best our life was as stable as a house of cards. Easily knocked down. Crisis wakes us up and it reminds us of the things in life that are really important. It reminds us, it steers us towards the things that we really need to endure and to make it through life. But you know what takes place? Time moves on. And as time goes on, life continues to rock us back to sleep. And we get complacent, and we live as if things are all good, that regardless of the crisis that you go through or somebody else goes through, the phone calls stop coming. We ourselves stop calling and trying to check in with folks. We get complacent. We know that complacency is something that we all struggle with. And crisis helps us. It wakes us up but only temporarily. Crisis doesn't give any lasting relief to the complacency that grips us. And here's what com- here's what complacency looks like. Here's what it does to us. What it does is it creates in us this coldness towards people and coldness towards God. Not coldness in the sense that we're mad and we're bitter. Coldness in the sense that we just lack the compassion and the warmth that should come as a result of being a part of the same family with somebody. This coldness comes, especially in a context like this, when you find yourself in church and folks come in and we've been here and the rest of uh we came in here now and we saw folks and they were smiling and we, hug them, and then when the time's done, we're going to stay up front, laugh and catch up and talk, and what's going to take place is that if we're not careful, we can think that just because folks in here are smiling, we can think that they're really okay. And one of the things that we all know, one thing that we talked about last week, is that life is not easy for anybody. To some extent, we're all not okay on the inside, but this. Complacency can make us think that just because we interact with folks that are smiling, that they don't need anything from us. And therefore, we go about our lives cold, not in the sense that we're mad, but cold in the sense that we really don't think about what the people that are in this room right now need. And this coldness, it doesn't just take places we relate to one another. It takes places we relate to God, as well, and again, this coldness, is not necessarily a bitterness, but a lack of warmth and affection or something that draws us closer to God. So what this looks like is all of the things that we know that we should do as Christians or those that want to get closer to God. Prayer, reading God's Word, self-control abstaining from things that God told us not to, all of those things are hard for us and they shouldn't be hard because we're a group of folks that say that we want to know God better. We're a group of folks that say that we know God but as we kind of go through life all of these things that we should do that we know that are helpful are increasingly hard to do. There's just not that same warmth and draw that as we reflect on God and What God does, there's not this warmth and draw, because sometimes we feel like we pray for things and ask God for things. And if he gave us those things, then I'd be warned to him and I'd thank him for the things that he gave me. But I don't seem to get the things that I pray for. Therefore, as I go through life, I see very little for me to thank God for and to be drawn towards him. And the way that we've heard, the way that we've been led to be cured of this complacency that we fall into is that we've just got to read God's word more, be in church more, hear more good preaching, sing better songs, all of these things. But what you and I know is there seems to be this disconnect in between the relationship that I hear that we can have with God and the relationship that I actually have with God. There's this gap. And this gap is only more frustrating the more that you hear about all of these things but don't have them. So the question is, how do we bridge this gap? What do we do to close this gap in between the beautiful and the great things that we hear about God and the experience that we have that falls way short? And for that, Once again, we don't look inside, but we turn to God's word. That as God speaks to us here in the book of Ephesians, this is a book about victory in Christ. This is a book about a group of folks that struggle like you and I do. It's a book about how they can experience all of the great things that God has. And those things are experience, not as we look inside, but as we look in Christ. So if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15, um, I'll read 15 to 23, and then I'll pull out um, some points. And it starts off, and Paul, as he writes to this church and just explains to them all of the great things that we have in Christ, God chose us before we could do anything so our pasts are inconsequential when it comes to be accepted by God. There's nobody that's done too much dirt. God chose us. God saved us. Christ died on the cross for our sin to forgive us, and God will seal us. So from eternity to eternity, God has worked to ensure that you and I could be close to him, Paul says this to a group of folks that know this, and then after Paul explains all of this, Paul says this, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I haven't stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you have been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power towards us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the hev- heavenly realms, far above all rule and power, rule and authority and power and dominion and ev- every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things un- under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The very first thing that Paul does is he starts off, and he starts off in a place that you and I wouldn't. We can tend to come into a place and think that a group of folks that know that here... All of these great truths that Christ died for our sins, that now we're sons and daughters of this great God that loves us. We can tend to think that once somebody knows that, that we're finished, that our work is done, that our goal is to create people that know those great truths so that we can point them back to all of those great truths. But Paul starts off and says, for this very reason, what reason? Paul says, for this very reason, the fact that I've gone on and proclaimed and expounded all of these great things that God has done, because you heard it, Paul says this, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, ever since I said these things, and it was clear that you didn't just say you believed in Christ but it actually produced a love inside of you. Since he saw this transformed life, the work has not stopped. It just started. Paul says this, Since I heard that, since I heard that you really believe these things, verse 16, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you, and my prayers. One of the things that we see here is that a changed life isn't the finish line. It's just the starting point. Paul sees this group of folks who would say that they know all of these truths about God. And the very first thing that he does is he doesn't grow complacent like you or I do. He doesn't look at folks that have made a profession of faith and think that they're good. He looks at them and he knows, well, there's still work to be done. His heart is drawn towards that. And more than his heart just being drawn towards them, he says this, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul's thanks, Paul's praise is not just aimed outward in a uh, a generic sense, but it's aimed towards God. Paul knows that God is the one responsible for all of what takes place in the world. So as we look to those that God has really done a change in their lives, it shouldn't lead us to grow complacent and to feel like we have no more work to do. It should lead us to remember there's somebody that's responsible for the change that took place. And so as we pray, we don't just pray to God to ask him for things. But we pray to God to thank him for the things that he's done. And what that does is it reminds us of God's grace in one another and God's favor towards us. We may not have all of the things that we've asked God for, but one thing that we can be assured of if we look to the folks that God has placed here is that God has provided us with things that we did not ask for. God has been incredibly good to us. God has been incredibly good in the lives of those that are here in this room. Spend some time after church and talk to folks that are here and ask them where they were 10 years ago and what they did 10 years ago and if they ever thought that they would be here and you would be floored and amazed by God's grace in the life of Somebody else. As we sit and as we pray and as we thank God, it reminds us that we serve a God that works. We serve a God that is at work. Giving thanks for the work that God has done in the lives of somebody else is the best way to guard us against both jealousy and frustration. Right? One thing that we can be assured of is this regardless of how much work that God does in somebody's life here and now, they will never be perfect in this life. So if the only prayers that we pray to God are ones where we are frustrated and lament the imperfections in somebody else that we see, in our spouse or in our friends, we're always going to have something to complain about. But if we sit with the fact, that perfection is impossible in this life, then do you know what we start to look for? Progress. And you can see progress in almost anybody. And when you see that progress of what God has done, it causes us to thank him and to praise him. And the people that we're mad and upset with, we're no longer as frustrated with them because we pray and we thank God for the great things that he's done in their life. This is what Paul does to a group of imperfect people. He starts off and he thanks God because he knows that there's somebody that is responsible for them. Far from the complacency that we feel, Paul is not cold towards anybody who he thinks is okay, but Paul's heart is drawn close to them because he knows that there is a God that is responsible for that change. And so as he thanks God, it draws them closer to him. The beauty of what we see here in the text and in the Bible is this. Throughout the Bible, we are encouraged to pray. We're told time and time again that we need to pray. The beauty of what we have here in God's word is that we have these snapshots where we get to look inside and to see what it is that folks pray for. And as we see what they pray for, it's not just an instruction to pray. Uh, But it gives us how it is that we are to, to, to pray. We see how it is that we're to be drawn closer to God. And the thing about prayer is this, and the point that's going to be made as we go on is this. Prayer is going to be the bridge in between hearing about God and having a relationship with him. Prayer is going to be what stands in the middle of all the things that we hear about God and the relationship that we have with Him. Prayer does two things for us. Prayer reveals what it is that you think is your biggest need, but it also reveals what you think that God's role is in fulfilling that need. If you want to know what somebody thinks about both life and, And God, sit back and listen to the words that they pray. Because what's going to come out is they're going to ask God for things. And those are the things that they think are the things that they need to be content in life. I need a new job. I need a new car. I need more money. I need for you to repair the relational conflict that I had. I need kids. I need a spouse. What prayer does is it reveals what we think our biggest need is. But then what it does is it shows what we think that God's role is in providing those things. There's some of us that pray and we go to God as if he's a butler. God, I need this. And if you give me this, then I'll do this. That prayer just really becomes this transactional exchange. It has absolutely nothing to do with a relationship with God. One of the biggest clues to determine what it is that you really want from somebody is when they ask you the question, how can I help you? How do you answer? My wife may ask me that same thing. Somebody at Wendy's may ask me that same thing. And there are two completely different responses that I have to that question. With a worker at Wendy's, there's something that I want from them. But with my wife, there's a relationship that I want. And so look here at when Paul prays. Paul doesn't pray for the things that you and I pray for. You go through all of his prayers and what you'll find is from a guy that was in jail, that was beaten, that was shipwrecked, that wrote to folks who endured the same type of struggles and pains that we do, what you'll see is that the amount that he prays for God to change circumstances is incredibly small. There's something else that he prays for. Look here in verse 17. Paul says this. I keep asking that the God of our Father, or I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. We pray for things, but what Paul's praying for is for a relationship and for a knowledge. We think that circumstances are going to be the things that make life better. Paul's saying a relationship with God is going to be the one thing that makes things better. So Paul steps back and he prays consistently, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, not so that we can know what job that we pick, not so that we can know who to marry. He's praying that God would give him the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know God better. And let me tell you this, We all need to know God better. We need to know God better primarily because God is infinite, which means this. Regardless of how much time you get to take to know him, there's always going to be more of him to know. That a million lifetimes of trying to plumb the depths of God's goodness only shows you that there's so much more to go that we haven't even scratched the surface. This prayer is not obsolete for anybody. We need to know God better. One of the main reasons that we need to know God better is this, is that in the course of this life, God always does things that are confusing to us. Right? That as God lives and as God acts in this world, life doesn't play out the way that we hoped that it would play out. We pray and we ask God for things, and He doesn't give us those things. We go through life and God tells us to trust Him, but it seems like the things that He does, if He really is the one responsible for the way that things go, it seems like that He acts in a manner that's so untrustworthy. And so what Paul's saying for all of us that would claim that we know God, we need to know him better because there is coming a day and a time when God is going to do something in your life where you say, I don't know God as well as I thought that I did. I thought that God loved me. If God loved me, then why dot, dot, dot. I don't know God as well as I thought that I did. Because I prayed and I asked for this good thing and I didn't get this good thing. I got a bad thing. I don't know God as well as I thought that I did. And what we do is we come to the conclusion that all these things that we heard about God, since we don't have these things, that these things are untrue and I don't want any piece of that God. And Paul is saying the group of people that claim to know their God, I keep asking that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and Revelation, so that you would know him better. And and how? Paul's just gone on and he's explained all of these great things that God has done. And we should look and say, that is enough for us to know God. Paul told us all of these things about God. But one of the things we have to come to grips with is when the Bible talks of Uh, 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 about knowledge, it talks about it in a way that you and I are not used to hearing about now. We've grown up here in the West, most of us, where knowledge is crammed for a test the night before, and when you take that test, fill in the answers that you heard, and you get a good grade, then that means that you know it. That's not the way that the Bible talks of, of, about knowledge. Knowledge is not information, knowledge is an experience. And so Paul's saying, I don't just want a group of people who know a whole lot of things about God. If you grew up in the church, you know a whole lot of things about God. But there are people that know a whole lot of things about God that do not know God, their lives have not been. Po- positively transform, And so what Paul's saying is his prayer is that these people would really know God. Their biggest need is that they know God. There's two different senses in which we know. Somebody can tell you how good my grandma's food is, or you can taste it. Somebody can tell you, you can hear about the joys of having your first child. Or for those of y'all that have kids in here, you experience the joy of what it is to hold him. For those of y'all who have been in here that have lost a loved one, People can sit and talk and speak about how much it hurts. Or you can know it as you have to walk by that open casket and say your goodbyes. Both of those are knowledge. But this type of knowledge, it's experiential, and it changes you to the core. And so as Paul is talking about People that know God and praying that they would know God. He's not just asking for people that can sit down and say all of the good things that God has done. Yes, I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but it has no impact on how I spend my money. Yes, I know that Christ died and now he sits and he reigns and he's the Lord of all. But it has no impact on how I govern the relationships that I have in my life. That's not the knowledge. Paul's praying that people wouldn't just hear about a closeness with God, but that they would have it. He's not just praying that folks would tell folks about how God, how good God has been, but that folks would taste it and their lives would change. And in that way, prayer does something that preaching can never do. Prayer has a power. It does something that proclamation Doesn't look at what Paul prays for. 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know three things, the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power towards those of us that believe. How do we get to, to know God? How does prayer bridge this gap in between the things that we hear about God and the relationship that we have with them? Paul says this: "I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. I pray that God would give you sight." What Paul's saying is this: We don't need to be convinced of God's goodness. We need to be cured of our blindness. That the problem is not that God is not good. The problem is not that we're not drawn to him because there's something in him that's lacking. The problem is is that you and I come into this world unable to see God's goodness. So time and time again throughout the Bible, the problem that's being presented is not that God's not good. It's that we fall into sin. We fall away from God because we're unable to see how good that he is. And he's proved this time and time again. The Ten Commandments that God gave to us were a road map of how it was that we were supposed to get to God. Do you know the problem with a road map? Is if you give it to somebody that's blind, it does them no good. All the instruction in the world can't change us. It can't move us closer to God. Here are the words that Paul says in Ephesians 4, 18. He says this, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Paul's point, what God says is this, Nobody rejects Jesus Because they've seen how good he is, and they've come to a conclusion that they'd rather not. They'd rather have something else. That if God is really who he says he is, the creator of the world, the definition of beauty, then the only people that reject him are the people that haven't really seen what he's like. And Paul's praying that they would really know that God would give them the grace to, to see. And throughout the whole Bible, this is what God does. This is what we come to God for. Not just asking him to change our circumstances, but we come to him and we ask him to cure us of our blindness. Your Bible starts off with a picture of a God that creates this world. And what's the very first thing that he does when he makes this world? What's the very first thing that he does? He shines light into darkness. He says, let there be light. In the rest of the Bible, there are a lot of people that do a lot of miracles. There's one miracle that Christ does that no one else does. And do you know what that is? Gives a blind man his sight. This is what God does for us. And our prayer that we would know God better, the way that we ask him to do that is we ask for him to give us sight. And what this does is it gives us a cue for how it is that we interact to see life change take place in somebody else. At our deepest level, our concern, our problem is not just that we need to be convinced. So husbands, if you see things in your wife that are less than what you hope that God has called them to, no amount of harsh speech, no amount of rough speech or yelling can change that. It's not that she needs to be convinced. It's that she needs to be cured. She needs to see God's greatness. Wives, no amount of nagging is going to change your husband. In his heart, our problem goes deep down inside of our hearts, and there's only one person in the history of the world that has ever shined light into darkness or cured the eyes of those that are blind, and that's our God. And when we pray, what we do is we embrace the fact that God does something that you and I cannot do. When we pray, we embrace the fact that if anybody is ever going to be changed and they're going to come to God, it's going to take place based on God's work and not our own. So as we pray for God to cure us of the complacency that we have in our lives, the things that cause us to drift, what we pray for is that God would enlighten our eyes, and Paul says this, so that we can see three things. The first thing that we pray, that we ask for God to see, is the hope to which he has called us. Uh, a guy by the name of Gene Kerr had to find hope like this. Hope is the feeling that, the feeling that you have right now isn't permanent. Hope is Whatever struggles or frustrations or things that I'm weighed down by, it's the hope that one day things won't be this way. And this is the beauty of what God has done for all of us that struggle or go through life and death and pain and frustration and sin and addiction and all types of things. The hope that we've been called to is that we serve a God that has the power to take care of those things. That however bleak our future was, what God has done for us in Christ, dying for us, what God has done for us in Christ, what that's done is he's rewritten our future. We have a real hope. We are not defined as the sum total of what's wrong with us. We've been called to a greater hope. Not just a greater hope, but it says this in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and this, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. We look at that and what we think is immediately what it is that God's going to give us. But if you look at the words here, It says the riches of this, of his inheritance, not ours, his. What's God's inheritance? It's us, sinners that he saved. What Paul's saying is I want you not only to know that you've been called to this great hope, but I want you to know that as a result of what God has done for us in Christ, purchasing people that should have been condemned, That what he's done is he's uh, bestowed on us this great worth. That there is value, there's love, there's affirmation in what God has done for us. And he wants us to really know this so that we don't have to spend the rest of our lives chasing for affirmation elsewhere. What he's saying is if you really knew. If you really knew all of the great thoughts which that God has and that God thinks of you, you wouldn't spend your time finding it in the embrace of a man, in the looks of a man. You wouldn't spend your time trying to find that affirmation in a job or a, a achievements or in family or in all of these things that we Pry so highly, if we really knew this, there would be a freedom that we live. And Paul's praying because what he says is, I can tell you this all day. But in order for this to go from words that you hear to worth that you have, it's only going to take place as God does the miraculous work in our hearts. But he prays. To this end. And lastly, he says this, and I pray that you would know this his incomparably great power for us who believe. That tells us two things. One, God has the ability to save any and every one of us. God has the power. And not only does God have this power, but God has this willingness. This power is not just out there. It's not that he just has it, but he's ready and he's willing to give that power to us. Which means this, there is no event that has gone on in the history of the world. There is no event that has gone on or is going on in your life right now that is Impossible for God to come through and demonstrate his power. There's nothing. And how do we know that that's true? This Paul talks about this power, look at how he describes it at the end of verse 19 and 20. He says this, that power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. This is a God that has the power to conquer death. And in this life that we live in, think about death. Death is the one thing that nobody can avoid. Death is the one enemy that causes everybody's knees to buckle. It is the one foe that can extract tears out of people that are the most callous and hard. And what he says here is, look at what God did to death. Look at what Christ did to death. The one thing that everybody fears, what Jesus did, was he met that fear head on and he raised So here we we see that it says that when God raised him from the dead, but that's better translated as God raised him from among the dead ones, which means this, what God did in Christ is not just an isolated thing that he's going to do for him, but what God did in him, he did it as the first fruits of what God is going to do for all of us who believe. Death is not something that we fear we're reminded that the same God that conquered death in his son intends to do the same thing for all of his children. That's why we prayed him. And not only did he raise him from the dead to show him that Jesus will live forever, but it goes on and says this, he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand. So put him... Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior, in a position of power. Not only at his right hand, but it goes on and says this, in the heavenly realms, far above the grasp of anybody else. There's nobody that can challenge him for a seat. And gave him a name that is above every name. Not only for this age, but in all of the, age, age, the ages to come. You look at the world that we live in. Every generation has a hero. And every generation has somebody else that they think will unseat the heroes of the past. Right? So so folks have said Michael Jordan is the best player of all time. But then there are certain folks that are so deluded as to think that... Le- that uh, That LeBron James, the hero of this time, will unseat Jordan. But what Paul says here about Christ is Christ has a name that is greater than any name. Not just those in the past, but those of all time. There's nobody that's going to come and unseat him. There's nobody that can challenge his uh, authority and power far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and all names that are... Invoked not just in this age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet. So it's as if the God of the universe raised him from the dead, brought him into the house and said, Jesus, put your feet up. All of this is yours. There's nobody that can tell you anything. You get to dictate how all of this runs. And not only are all things subject to him, but then he goes on and says, and God had appointed him head of all things. But look there at that last word. He doesn't just have all this power, but this great power is extended towards a particular group of people. He made Jesus the head of all things. For who? For the church which is his body who fills all things in every way. I'm briefly going to explain what that means as we come to a close, and it's this. God has always yearned throughout the scriptures to rule the world, and not just to rule the world, but to have a people that are in his place, that enjoy blessings because they submit to his rule. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were God's people. The place where God dwelt was the garden. And his rule was, don't eat of this one tree. Adam and Eve were blinded to the fact that God was trying to protect them. And what they did in their blindness was they turned from God. They didn't know God as well as they thought that they did. And as a result, they rejected God's rule and they were cast out from his presence. And on and on and on, it's the same story all the way down to our lives. God has provided us with instruction, things that we should do and things that we shouldn't do, and as Mo prayed at the start of our time, we've all seen that we've discounted things that God has told us to do, not because it's not good, but because we were blind to what it is that God tried to do. And as a result of that, there's distance in in between all of us from God's presence. So now what you have is a whole world of folks that do not willingly submit to Jesus, and in so doing, they don't enjoy his blessings. But here's the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ. That when Christ died for our sins, and he raised from the dead and gave us his spirit, he didn't just pay for all of our past deeds, but he cured us of our blindness. So that we can see in him the greatness of what God has done. So that we can see in him the, the lengths that God would go to cleanse us of our sin. And now what he's done, Christ with all of that power, what he does is he builds for himself a group called the church. His body, which fills all of the earth with all of his glory. And in that way, here's what the church does. Here's why we were so passionate about trying to start a church here in the West End, is that when Christ was on the earth, he had a physical body. The presence of God dwelt in his body so that anybody that met Jesus had a picture of what God was like. So when Christ died, what took place was that his body left this world. So we have to ask ourselves, how are people going to meet this great God with all of this power that cures the eyes of those that are blind? And the way that they're going to meet him is through his body on earth. Now we, as a church, function in the same way or in a similar way that Christ's body did on the earth. That the church now serves as the container of which God's spirit dwells. So that if people want to know what does the forgiveness of God look like, They don't just have to hear it, but they can see it and feel it as they're a part of God's church. And they see a group of folks that have been gripped by the forgiveness of God so much so that it changes the way that they forgive one another. If people want to know about the love of God, they don't just have to hear it or read it, but they can come into a community and they can see and feel the love From a group of folks that have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And now when they see needs of folks that are part of their body, they meet these needs. Not with cold, I hope that you do better, but with real tangible benefits. That if people want to know what Jesus is like, that our prayer is they would see what he's like. As they come into a community of folks who, in a sense, have had their eyes enlightened so that they really know the hope that lies within them. We are not hopeless. God has called us to a better future. We are not defined by the sum total of our failures. We know the great inheritance. We are not worthless. God has shown that we have Great worth. Therefore, we don't have to seek that elsewhere. And we would know His great power. For who? For us who believe. The way that we take hold of this faith in our life is not by working hard for it, it's not by trying to do better, it's by saying, God, I've seen and I've heard about. The great things that you have done. I've seen and I've heard what life looks like for people who step back from trying to control their own lives and submit to you. And now what I do is I submit to you, Lord. I give you my life. I surrender it. And I ask that you would change me. Help me to appreciate all the great things that you have done. And the beauty of what takes place is now we get to partake as a church. For those of us that have called Christ not just our Savior but our Lord, we get a chance to be the agents through which God makes his presence known here in the the world. And that gap is bridged. That takes place. Relationship with God is had and cultivated as we pray. Because we know, one, there's no better gift that God can give us than the gift of himself. And two, we know that only God can give us that gift. So as you come and as you track with us, we are a community that prays a whole lot. And it's not a a show. We pray because we really believe that prayer changes things. So what takes place, a practical way that we do that, is the first week of each month. Sunday night, we come together as a church just to pray. To thank God for all of the great things that he's done, to remind us of the ways that he's provided for us, and to ask him to continue to do things that we know that we can't do on our own. And our prayer is that God, who has all of this great power, will help to enlighten all of our eyes, that he would remind us That our deepest problem is that we need to be cured of our spiritual blindness. And we know that if God has done it in the past, he can and he will do it again for us. So let's pray. Father, once again, we come to you and we pray that you would do what only you can do. Give us sight, Father. Help us not to stay away from you because we don't see clearly all of what you are, but give us grace, Lord, to see that all the fulfillment that we want in this life can be found in you, Father. All our quests for affirmation and for love and acceptance, help us to to see, Lord, that deep down our longing is that we would find those things completely and eternally. I pray that you would remind us and help us to see that we can only find those things in you. And as we find those things in you, we pray that our lives would be changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.